to the Very Well Mind podcast. We've interviewed over 100 authors, experts, entrepreneurs, athletes, musicians, and others to help you learn strategies to care for your mental health. This episode is hosted by psychotherapist and best-selling author Amy Morin. Now let's get into the episode. Here are a few questions to consider. Do you ever drink more than you intend? Have you thought about cutting back on drinking but couldn't? Do you have a friend or family member who you think may have an addiction? If you answered yes to any of those questions, you're going to want to stick around for this episode. I received so many messages from listeners and readers who struggle with an addiction. And while the pandemic has actually helped some people change their habits for the better, others have found their drinking more than ever right now. Sometimes people think addiction is a sign of weakness, and consequently, they're afraid to get help. But having an addiction doesn't mean you're weak. It means you're struggling with something and that you're human. Getting help requires strength. Fortunately, there's more than one way to get help. And that's why I invited my guest today to be on this show. He's done a lot of research on alcohol and the brain. But you might not be aware of the strategies he has to offer. A lot of people have never heard that medication can help curb alcohol cravings. So my guest today is Dr. John Umhau. Dr. Umhau is a physician and an addiction medicine specialist. His research has uncovered some fascinating things like the fact that vitamin D deficiency is a significant risk factor in suicide. And he's discovered how diet changes and certain medications can reduce alcohol cravings and drinking. He has a telemedicine practice where he treats people who want to cut back on their drinking or stop altogether. And today he shares the strategies he uses in his practice and how medication and diet can be instrumental in helping people who want to cut back on their drinking. Make sure to stick around for that therapist take at the end of the episode. It's a part of the show where I break down my guest's mental strength strategies and share how you can apply them to your own life. So here's Dr. John Umhau and the strategies that can help reduce cravings for alcohol. Dr. Umhau, welcome to the Very Well Mind podcast. Oh, thank you very much, Amy. It's delightful to be here. So I cross paths with you because you're on the review board at Very Well Mind, where I'm the newly minted editor-in-chief. It's great to be there. I've enjoyed uh, the Very Well Mind for a lot of reasons. One is because it's got such good information, and you're really going after having unbiased, truthful information that's so hard to find these days on the internet. It's very helpful. Definitely. Uh, so one of the things that I really wanted to talk to you about is you're an addiction medicine specialist, and you often talk about something called the Sinclair method. And I have to say, as a therapist, I didn't know that the Sinclair method existed for people who tend to drink more than they want to. But I had a, a client who came in and told me about it, and I was really surprised that as a therapist, I had never heard of it before other than from a client. And once I learned about it, I just, I don't know why we don't know more about it, why it's not more available to people out there. Uh, but can you explain to our audience what the Sinclair Method is and who it's for? Sure. So the, there's a lot uh, that people don't necessarily know about alcohol. And one of the critical things that people should know if they have friends or loved ones or even themselves who have alcohol problems is that they're medicines that really can reduce the craving for alcohol. And uh, one of the ways that um, people use one of those medications uh, called naltrexone 
is to use it according to the way Dr. Sinclair recommended. Dr. Sinclair was an animal uh, researcher, and uh, he found that animals that uh, were given this drug and then um, were given the opportunity to drink alcohol would drink less alcohol. But not only would they drink less alcohol after they were given the medicine, but over time, if they are repeatedly given the alcohol after uh, the medicine, they would lose their interest in drinking. The animals would just, what Sinclair described as extinguish their learned drinking behavior, and they'd become non-drinking animals. And the same thing worked for people. So when people are given the naltrexone, and then they have a drink of alcohol, they don't get the same buzz oftentimes, and they don't get the same pleasure, they don't get the same endorphin release, because naltrexone blocks endorphins. It's an opiate blocker. And so the natural endorphins in the blood, uh, in the brain, are, are blocked um, by the naltrexone. And so the people who take naltrexone and then drink don't tend to keep drinking. There's no particular pleasure in drinking, and they can drink a glass of wine. It tastes pretty normal. But then they can put it down. One of the most remarkable things was one of the uh, was the response that people can get with naltrexone. I had a patient who'd been really struggling with alcohol for years. She'd gone to Alcoholics Anonymous and had been able to maintain sobriety, kind of through white knuckling it, uh, just kind of avoiding drinking, but she kept thinking about it more and more. And she took a naltrexone pill, and then an hour later, she had a drink of wine like she would usually do. But this time, instead of kind of the manic feeling that would take over her brain and force her to drink one, two, maybe three bottles of wine that night and end up on the floor drunk. She just took one glass of wine and she put it down and she went to fold some laundry and she went to bed. And the next morning she had a completely productive day. And as she says, you know, I'd never, never had that experience for the last 20 years. I'd been so overwhelmed with the desire to drink that I would drink all weekend and uh, have hangovers on the, on the weekdays. And the naltrexone just blocked the effect of alcohol so much that I was sort of able to have hope that I could recover. Of course, there's a complicated story with it because alcohol is such a complicating disease. And it, the medicines really only take away the craving. So um, patients can then decide to drink. They can decide to not take their medicine and plastered and they can decide that um, they want to drink because they're just miserable and they don't take the pill and they drink and they get every bit as intoxicated as they did before. And it kind of undoes any um, learning that they have, their brain may have experienced when they've been taking the naltrexone. But the good so thing about naltrexone... You right? have to take it every time before you drink, right? right? An hour so, before? So that the thing about naltrexone is that it works on the system in your brain, uh, the opiate system. And if you take it regularly, it will block the effects of alcohol. And you take a, a pill and you drink, you take a pill and you drink, and you do that over and over and over again. And eventually, your brain will sort of unlearn the pleasure of drinking, They'll disassociate any pleasure from uh, the drinking. And um, people lose the desire to drink. One of the most touching requests that patients have when they come to me is that they just don't want to think about alcohol all the time. They uh, realize they can control it to some extent, but they're thinking about alcohol all the time. And the naltrexone helps them to get free.
Because when we ask people to be abstinent, which is what we used to do a lot, is tell people, well, if you can't be sober, you can't come to therapy. Or if you can't stop drinking, then you can't get help. It seems really counterintuitive when you think about that. Because for some people, it feels like it's not an option to just quit drinking, right? Yeah. And and the uh, the powerful thing about using medicines like naltrexone, and there are other medicines too, is that when you have someone who's kind of trapped by alcohol, they can't imagine not drinking. It's like they would die if they don't have a drink. And so it's almost complete out of their reach to to think about stopping drinking. Um, many people will come to me and they say, you know, doc, I, I, I'm not interested in stopping. I, I got to, uh, it's so important, I'm, I, but I, but I do want to drink less. And I say, that's fine. Um, my goal for you is not to drink. It's safest for you. Um, there's no uh, benefit to alcohol in your life. I want you to stop entirely, but I get it. You can't stop now. That's where we are. And so they take the medicines, they do it faithfully. And, um, three, four, five months later, they said, yeah, doc, okay, I'm ready to quit now. I'm just going to quit. Not, I'm not going to mess with this medicine anymore. It's, it's not worth it. And so that's beautiful, I think. But at that time, they really need to have the reinforcing behaviors. They need to have the support groups. They need to have the, the life um, around them that's going to promote a sober life. They've got to be happy. They've got to enjoy other things because, you know, alcohol causes pleasure. It, it reduces pain. It gives you... Um, uh, something to look forward to every day. And if you don't have something like that, it's going to be really hard to live your life without alcohol. And that's part of the complicated thing about the disease is that although that medicines can work on the craving, if my patients don't turn over a new leaf, so to speak, or, or find a recovery group or work on their own character like we do uh, when we work on the 12 steps, then, then they're more likely to continue to suffer from alcohol problems. What's the success rate of naltrexone? That's a good question. Um, how do you measure success? So Dr. Sinclair and, and a lot of people have, have looked at uh, um, the effect over three months or six months or a year, and you know maybe it's around uh, 70 or 80%, and that's pretty consistent. The question is, do people stay off the alcohol? Do they, do they not go back? And no one knows. It's hard to do long-term studies. My impression is that... Um, that although it doesn't work for everybody, maybe 75% of the people it will, it will have an effect for. And of course, the effect is most profound in the first few weeks. It's kind of like a honeymoon period where your consumption goes way down and you feel like everything's going to be easy. And then a few months later, life happens and your brain is looking for an endorphin pleasure and your drinking increases again. And people say, well, it must not work. So I'm just going to give up. Well, that's it's important to keep going. And so, um, but if you don't, then you'll fail. But if you do keep going, then eventually you'll lose your, your craving. That's why the whole picture of recovery from alcohol involves more than just taking the pill for a while. And what does it actually do to your brain? So people that struggle with drinking too much, it affects their brain in a way that sets them up for a cycle that's really hard to break, Right. Right. So our, our brains are designed to, to go after um, uh, endorphins. There are a lot of chemicals in our brain that, that promote um, our behaviors. Um, the endorphins are, go, uh, are chemicals that give us pleasure. They're opiates. So they, we can think of them as, as motivating behaviors like uh, uh, being with friends, being with loved ones, eating good food, being outside on a summer day, on a sunny day, uh, enjoying life, uh, being with people. All those things are 
are good for us as human beings. And so that's the way I think humans were made to go after these endorphins. Well, alcohol also releases endorphins. There's, of course, uh, opiates and heroin and so forth are artificial endorphins. Um, but but these um, endorphins really motivate our behavior. And so when we find a behavior that's, that's um, um, healthy like that, that's promoting endorphins, our brains develop to go after that behavior. So we like to lay out in the sun or we like to be with people. So we develop those habits, those brain pathways that, that promote those habits are strengthened. Well, when you drink, you've got then uh, brain pathways that are developed which promote drinking. So you associate the thoughts of of uh, alcohol with pleasure. You associate going to a bar and drinking with pleasure. You associate all the taste of wine and alcohol and so forth with pleasures. And so your brain is wired to go that way. What Sinclair recommended was that uh, if you are only using the naltrexone when you're going to drink, um, then on days when you don't drink, your endorphin receptors will be upregulated. And if you do a healthy behavior, you'll enjoy that behavior even more. And so uh, on days when people are not taking the naltrexone, they're not drinking, uh, they go play tennis, they go for a walk, they enjoy their friends, and those pleasures will be even more reinforcing. And so those brain pathways will be more reinforced and people will enjoy those things more and uh, take over the desire to drink. And we know when we ask people to just quit drinking, the more that they tend to think about it, right? And they can white knuckle it for a little while. Right. And then there's a reason why they they go back to drinking. And we know this in psychology with a lot of things. The more we tell ourselves, just don't think about X, Y, or Z, the more we think about it and you start to actually perseverate on it. Right. So that's a good question. So there's, there's two things I want to say about that. One is that there's an effect called the alcohol deprivation effect, which is something Dr. Sinclair noted. Um, he gave al al uh, alcohol to animals, and they developed a taste for it, and then he would withdraw the alcohol. And he found that that over time, the, uh, the animals would lever press for the alcohol more and more the longer they went without alcohol. The longer people go without alcohol, the more they want it. And what's happened is the brain is seeking after the endorphin from the alcohol, and so it upregulates it. It creates more receptors for the endorphins. It wants that endorphin signal. And if it doesn't get it, the effect for someone is to crave alcohol more and more and more and more over time. And eventually they relapse. And if they don't have naltrexone on board when they take a, a sip, those endorphin receptors are going to be stimulated. It's going to be a wonderful feeling because the alcohol is going to re release endorphins that are magnified a lot by the upregulated system and the alcohol behavior is even more reinforced. Um, and that's what's really uh, important to remember when when uh, when people go through these cycles of binge drinking. Um, uh, I think that answered your question, but maybe there was another part to it. No, that definitely answered my question. Why do you think that we don't use naltrexone more often? Well, there's a lot of reasons why. It doesn't fit. So when I was a young researcher doctor, I had heard about uh, people that were trying to be moderate drinkers, which some people can do. We know that. But it's just so oftentimes that people will relapse and it's just so dangerous. And so like everybody else in the alcohol field that had been doing it for a while, we recognized that abstinence was safest. And so I really was 
big on just promoting only abstinence. That's certainly what I had heard uh, when I had talked to people in the Alcoholics Anonymous groups, that abstinence was safest, and that's what I believed. But over time, the research kind of came out that said, well, people can, some people can learn to, like, stop drinking. And certainly the research uh, on naltrexone shows that people who take naltrexone can learn to drink less. And um, so this was different. So a couple of things kind of happened with the naltrexone story that are kind of interesting. So uh, it was a cool molecule developed uh, as a hopeful treatment for opiate addiction because it blocks opiates. And uh, one of the theories about it was that it would eventually extinguish the desire to, to use opiates. And um, what Sinclair uh, discovered, though, is that if you give alcohol paired with uh, naltrexone that you could extinguish behavior. And his he patented his idea. So he he created what's called a use patent so that uh, anybody that uh, was going to commercialize the idea of uh, giving naltrexone and then drinking to extinguish alcohol behavior um, would be uh, in patent violation. So a few years after that, um, the drug companies that wanted to bring um, naltrexone to market as an alcohol as a treatment drug um, realized that they could not impinge on Sinclair's patent. So they had to come up with another way to use alcohol, uh, and use, use naltrexone to treat alcoholism. And that was to give naltrexone only to people who weren't drinking. Otherwise, they'd impinge on his patent. So the label for naltrexone, when it first came out, when I first started using naltrexone in 1995, was to use it only for people that had stopped drinking for at least a week or three days or something like that. And so that's the way we used it. And it works. Not so great, but it worked. I remember the first patient I gave it to uh, who was who had stopped drinking, and he was really craving alcohol. He took the medicine and it reduced the craving. Now, here's the thing. When we crave alcohol, we're thinking about drinking. And like Pavlov's dog, we, we produce the same neurochemicals that we would produce even if we were um, drinking. And so when you have a, a nice daydream about drinking, if you go to a party and raise drinking, you think about drinking, uh, endorphins are released. And those endorphins are reinforcing. So you think about it some more because it's a nice thing. It's like being in a daydream. You, want, you like the daydream. You want to stay there because it releases endorphins. And that's why people can relapse by watching people drink. Uh, it creates the opportunity for the brain's pathways to get reactivated again. So, however, if you take naltrexone, maybe even at a lot lower dose than you would with a regular pill, while you're craving alcohol, the cravings go away. That's kind of one of the neat things about naltrexone's use in the Sinclair method. So you take your pill and you have to wait an hour before you drink. So during that hour, what are you thinking about? You're thinking about drinking in an hour. And so all those thoughts, which produce endorphins, don't get reinforced because the endorphins that are produced are blocked by that naltrexone level going up. And at one hour, the naltrexone levels are at their maximum, and it can block the effect of a, of a stiff drink. Of course, if you drink too much, too fast, the endorphin response is um, exaggerated, and you can overcome the naltrexone blockade or naltrexone wall. One of the things that's really important to remember when people are being treated with naltrexone is that everybody's different when they respond to naltrexone. There's people sometimes need uh, one dose, other people need less less of a dose, and uh, sometimes they need to re redose because the naltrexone level in their bloodstream is really critical. If they are uh, 
are able to uh, have a glass of wine. Perhaps one level of naltrexone will block the endorphins from that glass of wine. But maybe a, um, a couple of shots of vodka won't be blocked. Or if they drink for maybe two hours, they're fine. Or if they drink for like six or eight or ten hours, it won't work. It'll The endorphins will kick in again and people will enjoy that alcohol an awful lot and relapse just because they drank beyond the effect of the pill. So who's a good candidate for naltrexone? You know, that's a great question. Everybody can benefit from naltrexone. Um, well, not everybody. Some people benefit from other medicines like uh, uh, topiramate or baclofen or ondansetron. These are other medications that uh, someone who knows how to treat alcoholism is very familiar with because not everybody responds to naltrexone. Uh, but for those that for those that, that do, it's really a, a wonder drug. Um, sometimes people that are really heavy drinkers um, will get a particularly lousy uh, response to naltrexone. There's side effects to every medicine. Naltrexone can cause um, headaches and um, nausea, vomiting sometimes. And it seems to be worse in people that uh, are really heavy drinkers on, on, a, on a daily basis. And those folks, either they start off with a small dose of naltrexone or they start on off on some of these other medications, reduce their drinking with the other medications, and then they can use the naltrexone without too many side effects. And who wouldn't be a candidate for naltrexone? So naltrexone is not for somebody that um, is allergic to it. It's not for somebody with liver failure, not for somebody who has had... Um, suicidal thoughts or depression from naltrexone. And that's one of the things you have to watch out for when you're a physician prescribing naltrexone is it can affect the mood. It can sometimes cause anxiety, sometimes cause um, depression, or if they have suicidal thoughts, you have to stop it and switch to, switch to a different medicine that's not going to have that same effect. But there's going to be medicines that work for just about everybody. Um, uh, I haven't yet to found a, a, a patient that uh, won't respond to uh, one of the medicines that we have. Really? So if naltrexone doesn't work, if you naltrexone something... doesn't work, it's there's unfortunately there's not a whole lot of publicity around um, other, these other medicines, but they work great for some people. I remember one guy he he used them. I had just read a pilot study, uh, early study about the use of um, prazosin, a blood pressure medicine for for alcoholism, and uh, he had this was years ago before he had the Sinclair method, and and I think he couldn't tolerate naltrexone for some reason, but the uh, this gentleman took the medicine, and uh, I said, "Well, can we try it?" The side effect is that you have a low blood pressure, and you you'll faint if you stand up too quick. And he said, "Okay, doc, I'll I'll be careful." I saw him like three months later, and, and I ran into him, and I didn't recognize him. And he gave me a big hug. I said, "Doc, thanks. You saved my life. I've never been sober before. I've never experienced life um, without alcohol." And um, I asked him, well, did you ever have any side effects? Yeah, I faded a couple of times, but I just stood up slowly now. But it's okay. I don't drink anymore. It's great. <laughs> and so it's uh, there, are, there are lots of different medicines that work for different, different people. It's, wow. Yeah. And when people don't want to try medicine, what are the reasons that they give you about why they're hesitant to try it? Well, people that see me on my practice, you know, they, they've searched on the internet to find help. And then they find me and they know that I'm interested in nutritional things. I'm interested in the, the complete personal behavior. So they, they click on make an appointment and stuff like that. And they, by that time, they really do want to, to, um, to try medicine. But what I've noticed is the nutritional stuff can, that I recommend, the particular, the particular diet that I recommend uh, will often stop their 
their alcohol uh, problems and they don't need to take the medicines. But um, Let's talk about that for a minute because so often we just talk about you go to AA or you just have to change your behavior, but we don't really talk about, not very often anyway, about the nutritional aspects of what people can do. Well, it's really a pity that people don't consider that often, but it's it's sort of, for the physician, it's sort of messy. There's not a, a simple solution like it is writing a prescription for a pill or something, but the nutritional aff- effects on the brain are really incredible. The um, The issue for Americans is that our diet is... Uh, kind of messed up. Um, it's a complicated thing, and there's a lot of uh, issues to particular components of our diet. But um, what, some of the research that I've done was uh, with omega-3 fatty acids. So I, I uh, was fortunate enough to, to work at NIH for, uh, for a long time, and, and uh, one of the projects I had was to uh, measure the uptake of the omega-3 fatty acid, uh, DHA, into the brain. And um, back behind me, if you can see, there's a picture of a, of a brain back here. That's the uptake of DHA into a human brain. And we found that the alcoholic uh, brain is very different than the, hum- than the uh, healthy brain. And the people with alcoholism have, uh, when they stop drinking, they have a much greater need for uh, omega-3 fatty acids. And the reason is because alcohol depletes the brain of omega-3 fatty acids. It's a long-term effect. Um, one of the things I'd, I, I've, I've measured was that the half-life of the omega-3 fatty acid DHA was um, about three years, which is a long time. So that means that the diet that we've had over decades is really helping us now, either preventing us our brain from deteriorating or it um, is um, causing us to have difficulty thinking. A lot of patients, uh, when they take uh, enough omega-3s, will find that they think clearly. They uh, they no longer um, have the same problem controlling their craving. And uh, one of the things that uh, I've, I've noticed is that um, in my own life is that once I start taking a high-dose omega-3s, that... Um, could really think clear. I was, was uh, pretty sharp compared to the way I was in college. I was doing my uh, my um, studies and, and uh, research much more efficiently when I started taking the omega-3s. Vitamins are really important too. We know that alcohol depletes the B vitamins. Um, it depletes magnesium. Uh, if you don't have enough magnesium and you stop drinking suddenly, you'll go into a seizure, but uh, magnesium is really helpful. One of the terrible things is is uh, when people uh, stop drinking and they uh, uh, start eating again, they can have uh, a, a depletion and they have a depletion of their thiamine or B1 vitamin, they go into Wernicke's encephalopathy. It's permanent brain damage that they can get from not having enough vitamin B1. And um, that's affected a number of people. Um, I remember t- uh, one time I took care of, when I was at NIH, I took care of a patient uh, who was a rock star. And he had consumed so much alcohol that um, he got Wernicke's encephalopathy, suffered tremendously about it. He sometimes talks about it, but I'm not going to mention who it is here. But um, the nutrition that, that I recommend um, includes vitamin D. Vitamin D is so critical for our, our personality and our development. Uh, vitamin D um, is, uh, of course, the sunshine vitamin. You get plenty of vitamin D if you lay out in the sun. But here in America, we don't do that anymore. We don't we don't work on the farm. We work behind computers and we're in the indoors all the time. And 
we don't get enough vitamin D as a, as a, as a culture. And it's particularly important um, if you don't have white skin. People like me are, are um, with lighter skin are more likely to get enough vitamin D in the sun, but um, that's not the case for everybody. And uh, what, I've, what I recommend is that people get their vitamin D level checked um, because if you've got um, vitamin D level about 40 uh, or 50, you're going to be healthier. And it works on your brain, too. And people don't get depressed. They don't get the winter blues. They don't get the, uh, the other uh, subtle problems that occur when your brain is not working. Vitamin D is a neurosteroid. Um, it's a fascinating chemical. It's not really a vitamin as much as it is a hormonal system that uh, responds to the amount of daylight. Um, although there's some vitamin D that they put in food and multiple vitamin pills and so forth, it's a minimal amount. You really have to take a specific vitamin D supplement to get enough. And um, a lot of people know that I've uh, written about uh, vitamin D as preventive uh, for COVID, which is really important too. Uh, has a lot of anti-inflammatory and anti-infective effects too. But that's another whole story. So why is it that people who drink uh, more often or more heavily tend to struggle more with having certain vitamins or certain uh, nutritional aspects going on? So um, over time, you, your vitamin levels are depleted. Alcohol depletes that. It, it uh, can uh, affect the microbiome. The, uh, the gut doesn't work as well. Um, it, um, when you're using uh, alcohol uh, to excess you're not getting good nutrition. So for instance, if you're taking a couple of bottles of wine a night, that's about a thousand uh, calories a day. And if your normal uh, caloric intake is supposed to be 2000, that means half of your calories are empty calories. You're not getting the, the normal nutrients in, in fruits and vegetables and meat and so forth. And so you're depleted that way. Uh, our uh, typical American diet is probably contributing to people's difficulty controlling their drinking. So in cultures where they have really good diets, uh, we think of the Mediterranean uh, areas of the world or, or Japan where they eat lots of, of omega-3s and seafood, those folks tend to be able to control their drinking. They don't get alcoholism. They may drink, but they can stop if they want to. And it's probably because their brain works well enough. They will. They have the willpower power to overcome the craving for alcohol and that's really uh, the way that i understand it you've got the component of craving which we can treat with the medications and we've got the component of willpower which we have to treat with diet and we have to reduce the uh, inflammation in our brain there's a lot um, that i was uh, studying about nutrition in the brain uh, before I left NIH, we had a, a lot of uh, uh, suggestions that these inflammatory mediators in the brain called cytokines predicted whether people would drink too much, whether they, whether they would crave alcohol. Uh, the more inflammation in the brain, uh, the more craving people would have. It's a complicated story, but it's really fascinating. People have been using alcohol as a medication for centuries. If you drink and you're feeling kind of lousy, the alcohol makes you feel better. If you have a, a flu or a cold, sometimes you'll drink and you just don't feel so bad. And that's because there's an anti-inflammatory effect. But if you drink too much or too long, then the inflammation increases. And um, over time, that inflammation um, causes the gut uh, microbiome to change. And uh, that causes the liver to become inflamed as the 
debris from dead bacteria called endotoxin leaks out of the gut and gets into the liver and the other tissues. And of course, the liver is critical for um, filtering out endotoxin. We could get a little bit, it's no problem, but excessive amounts can cause the liver to experience fibrosis and eventually cirrhosis, and you can die from it. But uh, before you get to that point, the liver is producing more of these inflammatory uh, mediator chemicals, these cytokines, and they get into the brain. And the brain thinks, oh my gosh, there's an inflammation going on. And there's a there's bacteria. We need to f- mount a brain inflama- inflammatory response. And so that's the situation in the brain that blocks the growth of new neurons. It blocks easy, easily uh, transmissible information uh, from, uh, from coming from the uh, frontal cortex where our willpower is located to the more uh, lower parts of our brain that where our craving is located. And when that inflammatory signal is, is uh, strong, it's really hard for the brain to grow new neurons. Um, some of the chemicals called BDNF that promote nerve growth are blocked. And um, people tend to really have a profound effect when the nutritional uh, and therefore the inflammatory situation changes and they can start to think clear again. I love that you said that willpower can be treated with nutrition. As a therapist, I have an influx of people in my office who will always say, like, I'm not good enough, or if I could just be stronger, I'd have more willpower. And they really think that it's a character flaw or that somehow there's something wrong with them if they can't resist temptation. So to hear the science behind how changing your diet and doing things differently in your life in terms of what you consume makes a huge difference, it's going to be a huge relief to so many people. It really, truly is, Amy. So many people that, uh, you know, search on the internet, they want to find an addiction doctor that understands nutrition, they they uh, come to my website, make an appointment. You know, the first thing I'll tell them is that, you know, take high-dose omega-3s, you know, quit drinking high-fructose corn syrup, um, avoid food additives, eat food that your great-grandparents ate, don't eat the, the kinds of foods that have all these chemicals in them. We don't know what the chemicals in our food do to our microbiome. Uh, the FDA is throughout the, 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 the last few decades has protected us from poisons that kill the mammalian cells. But a lot of the chemicals that uh, are in food supply, although they don't kill us, they slowly degrade our gut microbiome and they degrade our the, the ability of our uh, gut to uh, keep out the debris from the bacteria they make the gut more permeable or more leaky. And we don't know what chemicals are going to be affected, uh, affect different people uh, different ways. Um, some people are allergic to, to things like gluten. And so their gut becomes more permeable or leaky. And as a result, um, the endotoxin from their food gets into the liver and causes inflammation. There may be other things in the, in the gut too. It's fascinating that some bacteria actually uh, signal um, our brains to eat certain foods. At least that's the theory. So that if you're a a Japanese and eat lots of seaweed, over time, your gut microbiome will develop lots and lots of bacteria that love seaweed. And if you stop eating seaweed, those bacteria are going to be in a survival mode. And a lot of times, uh, the theory is that those bacteria will then um, give you the uh, chemicals through your bloodstream that will signal your brain to start eating seaweed again. And the same thought, of course, works for uh, people that are uh, uh, junk food addicts, you know, the, the sweets and, and so forth, probably develop uh, certain 
crop of bacteria to overgrow the gut that want sweets. And when you stop eating sweets, those bacteria, they're missing those nutrients that those bacteria particularly want. And so they will signal your brain, maybe by reducing serotonin levels, to eat more sweets. And so those bacteria can survive. It's sort of a, a very complicated theoretical um, understanding of how we live in symbiosis with our normal gut bacteria, but we really do. I think that sort of answered your question. I get too far, too far afield about, about how that's, important our diet is, you know, but it's... Well, uh, that's all fascinating. And what if somebody says, all right, I probably don't eat the healthiest. Where do I start in terms of, do they just buy vitamins and start taking them? Should you get blood work done? How do you find out what you need and how much to take? That's a good question, Amy. So I, I always, the simplest thing is to tell people to only eat things that their great-grandparents ate because there was less likelihood that those chemicals are going to be harmful. So, uh, so many of uh, our foods today are processed and for long, long life on the shelf or so forth. And we just don't know what, what the uh, effects of those are. They may be harmless, but they may not be. I recommend people eat fish every day. I eat fish every day. I didn't do that before my research kind of showed what it showed. A tremendous amount of uh, mental illnesses have been traced to lack of seafood, um, bipolar depression, uh, postpartum depression, uh, suicide, um, lots of Alzheimer's disease research. All these things show that a lack of fish is not as good for us as eating plenty of fish. It's And it may not be just only the omega-3 fatty acids that are in the fish, but it may also be uh, other nutrients, too, um, that we don't know about. Um, so I recommend people eat fish every day, and I don't recommend that people eat um, eat food that's um, uh, rich in the omega-6 fats. These are the fats that come from corn and soybean and peanut oils and peanuts. And of course, if an animal is fattened on those kinds of foods, uh, those um, animals will have plenty of the uh, um, of those fats in their tissues. So. For instance, when you're um, when you're when you're eating a um, a, um, a fish, uh, pardon me, if you're eating a, a beef cow that's been fattened on soybeans, uh, the flesh of those cows or chickens uh, are going to be uh, full of the omega six from that food source, and so those omega six fats get into your body and your brain, and that's what you become. Your uh, your gut is going to be more inflamed than it would be if you ate fish all the time. We noticed that people that eat fish and cultures that eat fish have a completely different personality. One of the fascinating things is if you look at the history of mankind, you'll notice that um, the social cohesion that uh, is necessary for the flourishing of cultures like the democracies in Greece or uh, the flourishing of, of Elizabethan England or even um, the American colonies on the seacoast, all of those cultures ate a lot of fish. And one, uh, a lot of us think that that uh, the seafood that was popular in those cultures in those times created healthy brains that did create cohesion among people uh, who's, uh, who could relate to each other better because their brains work better. Interesting. But let's say somebody um, like myself who lives on a boat in the Florida Keys yet can't stomach the idea of fish. Uh, <laughs> does eating omega-3 fatty acids in a pill form kind of make up for it? Yeah, well, that's really true. So <laughs> if you don't like fish, there's other ways to get around it. Uh, one is don't 
eat the high high omega-6 oils if you're if you uh, are a vegetarian just don't use the uh corn, peanuts, soybean oils. Um, you, know, you can use uh, olive oils pretty good. Um, there are also lots of omega-3s in uh, flax. And there are omega-3s. You can actually get pills that are, if you're a complete vegetarian, they're um, uh, DHA-derived uh, pills from algae. Um, my uh, colleague, uh, Norm Salem, uh, helped develop uh, the... Uh, use of bacteria to create um, uh, pure vegetarian uh, DHA, the omega-3 fatty acid. But it's, it's, um, it's possible to get fish oil that will replace the benefits of fish. Probably not. You're missing something, but it's certainly better than not eating anything with omega-3s in it. Good. All right. So there's hope for me. I can eat probably just about anything. Something about <laughs> fish, it just can't. It's not going to happen. Um, so... Coming out of the pandemic, I'm hearing from a lot of people, uh, and we know that our articles on Very Well Mind in terms of alcohol have skyrocketed, but I'm hearing for a lot of people who say, all right, maybe I have a problem, but I don't know. Where would you send people or what should they do if somebody's thinking, gosh, I, I have certain rules, maybe I only drink every other Thursday or I only drink on the weekends or I'm trying to cut back, but it's not working. But where's that line between knowing, might I have a problem with alcohol or not? Well, that's a good question. And everybody's different. And it's, People are complicated, so it's hard to know who's going to really um, go down the path of real problems with alcohol. Um, but it's a really dangerous disease. It really is sad because people in their prime of life lose all the qualities that, that make them human. They lose their ability to, to love their loved ones, and um, they end up uh, in a lonely life. It's really sad. So I just recommend if you have problems with alcohol, please stop. It's just life is too short to waste it on a, a chemical um, pleasure. Look for pleasures in, in uh, spirituality. Look for pleasures in, in your friends and loved ones. Um, you know, and I, and I, uh, I, I'm happy to help people. Uh, a lot of people come to my practice, they search the internet, they try to, f they don't want to think about alcohol all the time. And they, they find my website and they click on the button to make an appointment. And we talk about not thinking about alcohol all the time and how to get to the point where they are not controlled by the desire to drink. And that's really what I'm after. I'm after people to get free. And uh, once that freedom from the craving occurs, then they can hopefully develop the, the lifetime habits that will keep them free, that will develop the, the personality through the development of, uh, of character through the 12 steps, or they'll develop the uh, uh, social networks that are not dependent on substances to feel good, or they'll develop uh, the spiritual depth where they feel peaceful about their life and they're giving back to their society and their community. And those folks tend to be happier and they, and they really enjoy their life more than the people that are thinking about alcohol all the time. You ever had anybody that started naltrexone and then thought my life isn't as good once they gave up drinking? <laughs> Not yet. <laughs> <laughs> Not yet. And so you're one of doctors. I know there's other ones out there, but you can prescribe to people who are Long distance, you do teletherapy. So if right, somebody right. lives in a different area, they can still right. chat with you online and you can prescribe medication. They don't have to leave their home. They don't have to right. go see the, see a doctor in person, but you have the ability to do that, correct? Right. It's a, it's, it's a perfect fit for telemedicine. A lot of, a lot of other guys do it and uh, it's easy to find a doctor that'll prescribe naltrexone um, on the internet. Uh, 
my practice is devoted to helping people that um, may have had problems with naltrexone and want to try something different or who um, are more interested in the more holistic of, uh, af, uh, aspects of, of treatment and uh, so forth. And naltrexone, for people who maybe don't even have insurance, it's relatively inexpensive, right? Right. It really is. So it's only about 20 bucks a prescription for a month. Um, some of the other medicines are even less. So that's way cheaper um, than drinking. Total max is like ten dollars a month, something like that. If if you use it, it's it's uh, applicable for the developing world. So naltrexone, I'm uh, working with some buddies that are trying to get a mission set up in India, or uh, and also in um, Kenya, where naltrexone is cheap. In India, it's like six cents a pill. That's really pretty applicable to the developing world. Um, so we're really hopeful that this kind of use of medications can free a lot of people because the alcohol is a problem everywhere. And so for somebody who might want to reach out to you, tell us what your website is and what people will find when they go there. Sure. I'm at alcoholrecoverymedicine.com. And uh, at alcoholrecoverymedicine.com, people could read about naltrexone. They can find out about the nutritional aspects of treatment and they could uh, click on the button to make an appointment. They'll also hear about a, a program that I'm working on with some uh, people that are really interested in developing a, a weekend away. A lot of times people have loved ones um, who drink too much and they want them to stop drinking, but people in that situation can't imagine life without alcohol. They can't imagine um, uh, not having the a drink in their hand, and they and they they feel like they'd rather die than than uh, stop drinking. And for those folks, they're not going to go to a detox center. They're not going to stop drinking. They're not going to go to an A meeting. But my my thought is that they might go to a weekend away where they'll um, be with other people who are trying to drink less. They'll hear about naltrexone. They hear about the nutritional aspects of of how to have more willpower, and through that they'll get free. They'll get free of the alcohol. So that's the best life reset weekend. It's something I'm working on. As soon as we have the COVID uh, settled down enough, we'll have in-person meetings. And that's the kind of thing that I think is really going to be very helpful for people. And of course, on my website, there'll be a link to the best life reset uh, weekend if people want to explore that. Well, we'll make sure to link to that in the show notes too, because Great. I think what you offer is to give people hope, an alternative, something when they say, people keep telling me to stop, but I can't, or I know I need to, but uh, I'm not at a place where that seems possible. I, you give people hope to say, well, let's try this. Let's experiment with this opportunity and see what happens. And it sounds like it has a great success rate. It really does give people hope. This alcohol recovery medicine website is is great for everybody in the country. Of course, as a doctor, I can only prescribe to the people that I have licensed, uh, licensed in those states for, which is about a third of the country, but not every place. It's, uh, but there are other doctors that, that just like me, that can prescribe naltrexone wherever you are. Um, and it does, pres does give people hope. It's really one of the most satisfying things I've done in medicine. I've done a lot of things in medicine. This is really quite satisfying. Really is nice to help people get free. I've seen it as a therapist too, that people who try it say, I didn't think that this was possible, but they see what life is like after they've done it. And they think, here I am and life is different and it's so much better now. Yeah, it's really quite amazingly different. People come to me all the time and they say, thanks, doc. You know, you saved my life. And it's, of course, it's not me. They've done it themselves. But um, a lot of times people just need some, some good hope. Some good, right. Good one, more, one more tool to get them there. One more tool to get them there. That's right. 
That's well, right. Dr. Umhow, thank you so much for being on the Very Well Mind podcast. Oh, it's fun. Thanks, Amy. Delightful. Thanks for, thanks for doing such a good job with the Very Well Mind folks, too. That's a great website for folks. Thank you. Welcome to The Therapist Take. This is a part of the show where I take some of the strategies my guests share and talk about how to apply them to your own life. Here are three of Dr. Umhow's strategies that I highly recommend. Number one, only eat what your grandparents would have eaten. We all know that there's a direct link between our diet and our physical health, but there's also a clear link between the food you eat and your mental health. We're finding time and time again that mental health improves when people eat healthier diets. But I don't even like using the word diet because it seems synonymous with weight loss or fads about restrictive eating. So I really like Dr. Umhau's rule, only eat what your grandparents would have eaten. It really simplifies healthy eating and it serves as a good reminder of how much processed food we all have in our lives. Stores are filled with sugary treats and convenient meals that contain lots of added chemicals and ingredients. So depending on how old you are, you might need to imagine your great-grandparents. But think about the simple foods and home-cooked meals they likely enjoyed and consider eating in a similar way. Number two, if you want to learn about medication options for addiction, talk to an addiction medication specialist. Dr. Amhaus says medication can be a great tool for many people who are battling addiction. Yet it's not talked about very often. Sadly, I've seen many people over the years who assumed their inability to quit drinking or stop using drugs was due to a lack of willpower. But the truth is, the substances they used were taking such a toll on their brains that it was nearly impossible to quit on their own. If you're concerned about your alcohol use, drug use, or another kind of addiction, talk to an addiction medicine specialist, like Dr. Amhau. Attending an appointment doesn't mean that you have to take medicine. But talking to someone might help you better understand if medication might be an option for you either now or down the road. Number three, create a lifestyle that supports good habits. Of course, medication alone doesn't cure everything. It's important to create an environment that sets you up for success. If you want to eat a healthier diet, only have healthy food in your home. If you want to drink less alcohol, don't spend a lot of time with people who are drinking. A lifestyle overhaul can be tough to make on your own, though. It's important to have like-minded people who support your good habits. So those are three of Dr. Umhouse strategies I highly recommend. Eat foods your grandparents would have eaten. Talk to an addiction medication specialist if you're battling an addiction. And create a lifestyle that supports good habits. Thank you for listening to the Very Well Mind podcast. If you found this episode informative, please share the episode with your friends and family and leave a rating and review wherever you listen to podcasts. To learn more about the Very Well Mind podcast, you can head to verywellmind.com slash podcasts.